Hi everybody, Dan here. I've got a special guest today, Mr. Simon Javizio. A pillar of our community, Simon has been working in his field for over 70 years as a funeral director here in the Metro Detroit area. You might say, a funeral director? That's a far cry from Dan's usual roster of guests, right? Well, it's not as far as you might think. You know, when I was 16, I had been recruited by a band to play the clarinet during weddings and special events. And that band was known as Arziv, which is Armenian for Eagle. And they played both Armenian and American music. Little did I know, that I was hired to be Simon's replacement. Needless to say, I had some pretty big shoes to fill. Now, all these years later, I've invited Mr. Javijan for an interview to discuss music, life, and yes, death. We were also joined in the room by Simon's brother Gary Javijan and my brother Mark Yesian, a couple of self-described what? Checkers? Death is a difficult subject to broach, but it's an important one that all of us are confronted with at some point in our lives. But yes, before we get into the heavy stuff, let's back up a bit and talk about Simon's early days as a budding clarinetist and saxophone player. How does that all begin? You graduated from Cass Tech High School. Yes. And of which we had a various and sundry other musicians of great caliber yes. who had graduated from that school with yes. you. I know Kenny Burrell, a guitarist, mm -hmm. Margaret Pauliam, yeah. uh, an organist who played in the church for many, many years, but there were many others. Right. Uh, but so you come from all of this lineage of Cast Tech. Were you in the music curriculum with Cast Tech? Yes. And would it so it would be a music major yes and so your performance it, it was a performance on clarinet correct yes classical oh yes at what point did you decide you know i want to play in a band which you did an armenian band which played american and armenian, armenian yes, music right but um how did that transition what was the thought process well if I may go back to the very beginning where in our home I had a we had an uncle Paul who lived with us he was a survivor of the genocide mm -hmm. and he wasn't our real uncle he was a step uncle to us mm -hmm. but he was the clarinetist he was a real estate man by day but he had a band that he, he played for weddings and dances and so forth, and he was a clarinetist. Mm -hmm. He taught me how to play the clarinet when I was three years old. Wow. Uh, he gave me a little tin flute to play mm -hmm. and saw that I, was, I had a little bit of talent with it. By the time I became five years of age, he bought me my first saxophone, my first clarinet, and he taught me the best that he could with the music. And by the time I was six and seven years old, he had taught me enough of the Armenian music 
that whenever he played on the stage for a wedding or a dance close by to home in Delray, he'd take me with him. I'd be up on the stage playing with him as a little six-year-old, seven-year-old. Wow. In fact, I was on the stage with him December 7, 1941, <laughs> when uh, Pearl Harbor. Hit. Oh, my gosh. So right. I remember that day because of it. Right. So Uncle Paul got to the point where he said, I've taught you all I can teach you. So I want you to start taking private lessons. So I started taking private lessons from teachers when I was seven years old. He says, now, he said, when you're ready for high school, I'm sending you to Cass Tech. You're going to go to Cass and major in music. And when you're all done and you graduate from Cass, I'm sending you to Italy and you're going to study music in Italy. Wow, that's so aggressive. So he had plans for me. Yeah, apparently. I was 11 years old when Uncle Paul died. Mm. He was only 46 years, 48 years old. The name of his band was Ardziv. Ardziv means eagle in Armenian. Right. Because he had taught me all the Armenian music and I had played on the stage and he died, I wanted to carry on what he had already brought up to that point. So I started my own band, named it Arziv. Okay. That's where Arziv came from. And then I started accumulating Armenian musicians, and we became the Simon Chavizian Arziv Orchestra, as you know it to be. Right. So that's that's the basis that bring that brought me to Cast Tech to how you asked me the question. Right. And uh, it's interesting. Were you more inclined to play Armenian music or American music at the time? Uh, because you were studied in both. I I had the, my great love and my my soul was all classical because mm -hmm. I learned classical music. And my sister Margaret was the pianist, mm -hmm. and she would be playing classical music. Mm -hmm. So we had it in our house. We had it with Uncle Paul, the Armenian, and with my sister Margaret on the piano, and my love of, this, of the uh, classical, it was in our house. So the combination was there to begin with. I see. So my great love, is, and still is, classical music. But then Trent, Armenian music. But the Armenian music is the fun music. Okay. Yeah. That's how you would characterize it. It's the fun music. Yeah. Especially... Uh, Challenging, I have to say, uh, mm -hmm. because of the odd time signatures, the uh, nine eight six eight whatever it was. I mean, you you were into that apparently. All by ear, no music. So the, you you had both the benefit of the classical discipline plus the ear. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. correct. You have so many interesting stories that uh, as a as a clarinetist in an Armenian band, in particular, Arziv, mm -hmm. uh, which I was part of after yes. you had left. And, oh, people would ask me uh, or say to me, well, we think that um, <clears throat> Simon left the band because he was being um, kind of not scolded is too tough of a word, but uh, maybe didn't think 
it appropriate for you to be playing in a band while you would be a funeral director. Is there any truth to no, that? No, on the contrary. There was, there was talk about that in, in some of the people, but it had gotten to the point that in my profession as a funeral director, mm -hmm. I became busier and busier and busier, and I saw that, no, I don't have the time to do both. Right. But my question to you still is, how would you transition from being a musician into being a funeral director? Well, uh, I uh, even though Uncle Paul died, I still went to Cass Tech and I majored in music and I graduated there. And my plans were to go to University of Michigan for music. Mm -hmm. And I went and I, uh, uh, I played for Dr. Ravelli. Oh, sure. And I made the uh, marching band and I made the symphony band as well. Right. So in September, I was all set to go to University of Michigan. So now it's May, before that September, it's May, and my sister Margaret, who we talked about, had a little four-year-old boy who got killed in an accident. Oh, wow. And we had to have his funeral. It was a devastating time in our life. Mm -hmm. And our funeral director friend, Mr. Louis Magurdich, uh, Magurdichian, mm -hmm. came to do the funeral for our little nephew. And my sister was out of it, my mother was out of it. It was a terrible, terrible grieving time for them. And the way Mr. Magurdichan took care of them so kindly and so courteously and so professionally. And my little nephew, he prepared and put him in the casket and he looked so beautiful. It impressed me. And then all of a sudden that impression, that impression went to the back of my mind that when I was four years old, my mother's mother, my grandmother died mm -hmm. when I was four. And she was only 46 years old when wow. she died. Oh, really? I remember her the last year of her life being so ill, we would be going back and forth, back and forth to Henry Ford Hospital, and I'd see my grandmother going down, 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 down. Mm -hmm. And when she passed away, it was Mr. Magurdichin at that time as our funeral director, and he came. And my mother was only in her young 20s when she lost her mother, and mom was in, in terrible grief it during my nephew's funeral i remembered that how nicely he had prepared grandma and how he took care of my mother and our family and so i was watching him take care of my little nephew's funeral and he looked at me and said simon you you're looking and watching me he said what is it i said you've interested me. He said, well, he said, if you think you're interested, he said, before you go to uh, University of Michigan in September, why don't you spend the summer with me and see what it's like? I spent the summer with him and I saw that, my gosh, I see a correlation 
between what I did as a musician and how people reacted to the music and as a funeral director how you take care of the people and how they react to that. I believe in living and I could see that as a musician we'd play and people would come there with all kinds of things in their mind but they'd come enjoy the music and dance and then go back home yeah it's a, fun, it's a fun thing and yeah that's what we right. do as musicians right so right but in in funeral work it's a terrible time in a family's life and it's they've got this big hump to go over this hump of this grief that they have mm -hmm. if the funeral director takes his time to understand what's meaningful for that particular funeral and how he can best handle the family cycle, help them over this bump, and go on with their life. I saw that correlation between the two. Right. And but, I had no problem with it. But how old now are you? At what age were you when you decided to leave the band? Uh, 32. Are you a funeral director yes. simultaneously? Yes, I've well, got the were. funeral you're doing home. Both, you're doing both things. I'm doing both. Mm -hmm. But like I said earlier, by that time, my, my practice in funeral work had gained more momentum more and more and more where I saw that I don't have the time to do both. Mm -hmm. I'd be playing for a wedding and my phone would go off and somebody just had a death and I got to go take care of them. Mm. Now, do I leave the stage to go take care of them or do I stay on the <laughs> stage and continue playing? Right. See, yeah. my time ran out. Right, right. And that's when I stopped playing professionally in but, the band. But that's a heavy magnet uh, in my estimation that you would be drawn uh, with all this background to going into that profession, uh, in particular as a musician who is able to uh, create fun and levity with people on the dance floor, that you're doing this. And it, it's, it's still an amazing, amazing thing to me that... I'm still serving people and I'm doing things for people. Right. I'm a people person. Right, I understand. And as a result, I can see doing the same thing for both. Right. You had uh, shared with me numbers of anecdotes uh, <laughs> as, as a musician, and I would think that our audience would love to hear what this guy was doing in the <clears throat> band, having met some very, very popular musicians. Uh, <laughs> namely, you can tell me about Ray Charles, of all things. How did, that, how did Ray Charles intercept you? Okay. It was uh, around in, in the 1950s, early 60s, I forget the exact date. Mm -hmm. But I, I had a band job to play in Niagara Falls, mm -hmm. Canada. Not Niagara Falls, New York, but Niagara Falls, Canada, right across from each other. Right. And it was a church, uh, church picnic then. And so we went and played for the church picnic. It was a hot summer day, 95 degrees, hot and moist. And we were sweating and playing the music. 
and they had Canadian beer. Now, in those days, we didn't have Canadian beer in the United States. Right. So, wow, let's have some Canadian beer. So, we, we drank Canadian beer as we were, as we were playing. Mm -hmm. And when we were done, we said, let's buy a case and take the case of beer home with us. Mm -hmm. So, we iced it down and we drove back and we get to the tunnel at mm -hmm. Windsor. <clears throat> and the, uh, uh, the uh, security guard there says, hey, you can't take the beer across. It's not allowed in, in, in the States. Right. We said, geez, a nice cold uh, 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 case of beer. What do you expect us to do? He said, you can't take it across. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, what, what could we do? He said, you have two choices. Either take it there and pour it in that container, trash container, and go on your way home. Or pull over there. Park the car there. We've got a uh, a security house there. Park there. Drink all the beer you want. Put the beer in your stomach and and go home. Mm -hmm. So we pulled up to the house, uh, the security house there, and we're drinking cold beer. A car pulled up next to us. The driver got out and went into the security house, and I looked and I looked again, and here's a passenger sitting there. And it's a black man with wearing, wearing sunglasses. And I looked closely and I said, wait a minute, that looks like Ray Charles. And yeah, I said, that's Ray Charles. <laughs> so I got out of the car and I went over there and I introduced myself. I said, Mr. Charles, we're fellow musicians sitting here and we're having some cold beer. Would you mind having some cold beer? He said, oh, I'd love it. <laughs> so we sat there drinking cold beer with Ray Charles. <laughs> So we would talk, then who are you, what are you doing, and then this, okay? Right. Now that passed. Mm -hmm. A few years later, one of the jobs we had was in Chicago. We played a lot of jobs in Chicago. Not like only for... Ar Armenian weddings or... Armenian weddings, Armenian dances, and Assyrian. There's a big Assyrian population oh, in Chicago. Okay. And they did their weddings up big. They always had their weddings, downtown hotels. Uh, Sherman House was one of the hotels they always used. And the least they would have in the reception would be 800 people, 900 wow. people. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so here we are playing for an Assyrian wedding. Now, whenever we went to Chicago, and by that time I had to join the union, mm -hmm. and so I had to have a contract with them and so forth. I would write the contract so that we would stop playing by 1.30 the latest. We would not go beyond 1.30 even with overtime. Mm -hmm. So this one time that we were there, 1.30 came, we packed up, and we're going to go to Greektown. <clears throat> And Ken, my drummer, had injured his fingers, and so I took another one of my friends from Cast Tech, Johnny Pops, to play drums with us. And Johnny says, uh, hey, he says, I don't want to go to Greek Town. He says, there's a jazz festival going on here in town. Let's go to the jazz festival. So we said, all right, for a change, we'll go to the jazz festival. 
So instead of going to Greek Town, we go to the Jazz Festival. Now who's playing? Ray Charles. Okay. So we sat there listening to him, listening to him. They went to three o'clock mm -hmm. and they stopped playing at three. <clears throat> so when they stopped playing, I went up on the stage and I just whispered in his ear, you know, he's blind, the poor man, he couldn't see. I went up to his ear and I said, would you like some cold Canadian beer? And he says, is that you? I said, yeah, it's me. He says, you got your horn with you? I said, yeah, I got my horn with me. He says, come on up on the stage. He says, we're going to jam a while. Did you go up and play? I went up on the stage with him we were, and we jammed till five o'clock. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> So that's my story of Ray Charles. And then you had another one with uh, <laughs> Red Norbo. Uh, yes. A famous, very famous for our audience that doesn't know, vibraphone yes. player. Right. And right. Um, uh, you, you, had, you had talked about him as well. I don't know if we'll have time to go through all of that, but... I'll make it short. Go ahead. I'll make it short. That one, we had, we had to play for a... Uh, a, a dance in uh, St. Louis, mm -hmm. East St. Louis, Illinois. But the dance was Sunday. We had a wedding to play here on Saturday, Saturday night. Mm -hmm. So we played the wedding on Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, for the first time ever, I had never flown before, we got on a plane and flew to St. Louis so that we'd get there in time to play for them. Okay. Now, when we were through playing, we weren't going to spend the extra money to fly back. Mm -hmm. We said, let's take a train back. It would cost less. Mm -hmm. So we got on a train and it was a milk train, but it was on the train. So we sat in the club car mm -hmm. telling jokes and whatever. And we started drinking a little bit of beer. Again. Again. <laughs> yeah. And there was a man sitting there <clears throat> all by himself and he kept looking at us and we'd be laughing and talking and he seemed to be interested. Finally he came over, he says, you guys are having a great time. Who are you? What are you? And we said, well, we're, we're musicians. He said, I'm a musician too. We said, oh really? Well, uh, my name is Simon. What's your name? He said, my name is Red Norvo. Unbelievable. That's crazy. Unbelievable. So we sat there all the way to Detroit playing cards with Red Norvo oh in the gosh. club car. Wow. That's pretty cool. As I've known you, uh, in particular with my work with the Army and Trilogy, yes. uh, you've been a consult for us uh, because of your own knowledge base of uh, a musician and all the other various and the sundry traditions that we go through as uh, Armenians, mm -hmm. uh, but you had provided me some uh, pictures of Armenian people dancing, mm -hmm. which we use in our film, mm -hmm. and also a lot of the other uh, the details that uh, were really, really significant for us to be using. Uh, you also were part of the film with uh, uh, Aratapuzian, yes, Guardians of the Music, where he's going through various and sundry Armenian bands through time, mm -hmm. of which obviously you were uh, one with uh, your group, Idziv. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, this all transitions, though, for me in my brain. I'm thinking still, how is this happening? You go to 
what mortuary school? Yes. Wayne State University? Yeah, unfortunately I didn't go to U of M because they didn't have a mort school, mm. so I, I went to Wayne. And how long was that study for? That That's a four-year. And so you yeah. get a degree in mortuary <clears throat> science. Mm -hmm. Do they give you any indication at the time of what the viability is that you would be in the mortuary business? Would you be acting as an intern? Would you start off owning your own mortuary uh, facility? Uh, how does that all go? You know, you're coming out of school. What do you what do you what do you do with that? Well, part 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 of your training is uh, connected with your license, and you have to be an apprentice before they give you a funeral director's license. Okay. So you you get practical experience working in a funeral home mm -hmm. as an apprentice. Mm -hmm. So immediately, I had become an apprentice with Mr. McGurdichan. Mm -hmm. And then I bought his his facility. Okay. So I was able to be the funeral director, be the owner, and okay. and uh, do my schooling also. But in that, there are a lot of behind the scenes things that the public doesn't see in the preparation mm -hmm. of the body. Uh, how you move along in that area, I. I have no idea. I mean, it's it it, it looks gruesome to me from my own my own vantage point, um, and and that's a matter of getting used to maybe is it or not? I mean, do you get used to that? And it's like anything else. You know, you talk to doctors and surgeons, and they say, "Well, a heart operation is nothing." You know, after a while, it's like uh, driving a uh, riding a bike. Is that the same thing? You have you have to be in an island of your own and everything else is blowing around you you've got to be an island of calm and so you can't be subjective to what what it is because we handled some terrible terrible cases of accidents and illnesses where the but you you've got to say i've got a job to do and this is my job to do it right for this person and for the family. Mm -hmm. And it, it really is no different than how a doctor would react to working on a child. With mutilation of a body, you yeah. have to give some forethought to how that's going to be presented. Then. Yes, and sure. Would you suggest to somebody, well, you know what, it would be better if you had a closed casket funeral as opposed to an open casket? Is there any line there where you make a decision yourself, or is that up to the, uh, uh, to the family? Part of our training in school mm -hmm. is uh, exactly that. We we had to do we had to do uh, 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 we we had to make a nose if the nose was missing, or make actually we we had to have a photograph in front of us and model an entire uh, thing in clay. Really? Yes, and and I felt that no. I won't be able to do that. I'm not an artist to be able You'd to You'd have do that. to be a sculptor. Yeah. But I did it. And we were able to do it because their teaching method was such 
that by doing step by step by step, suddenly you see that, yeah, I'm able to do it. I did it. Wow. So I ended up with, with a complete head mm-hmm. of the picture that I had. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the class. And we have to do that for accident cases or other uh, we're uh, wasting away diseases mm-hmm. to fix up the the body in a presentable form, and so many times the family will tell us we want a closed casket, and I honor their request, but I tell them that whether you want it open or closed, we're still going to do a complete jo- uh, complete procedure on on it. And before we close the casket, I at least I'd like one of you to identify that yes, it is your loved one that's in the casket. And with that, I have to tell you, I was with my brother extraordinarily surprised when looking down at my mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, we chose to close the casket mm-hmm. and uh, when open, we were uh, mystified at how you were able to take off 30 years of her life. And uh, we were debating right there in the church, should we leave this open or should we leave this closed? Well, conjecture had it that we would close it. But mm-hmm. uh, I was, I have to tell you, frankly, quite amazed uh, as my brother Mark was. Yeah. This leads me to the history of funerals. Some of the earliest were, uh, I mean, we're talking, it could date back 50,000 years ago. Yes. Uh, the Egyptians yes. won, mm-hmm. uh, and they had various ways of, of, of uh, uh, having their loved ones placed. Uh, and, and the Jews also, yes. uh, uh, <clears throat> the Ashkenazis uh, back then, uh, and they all have their own methods mm-hmm. of doing things. A lot of religious orders, the Indians, for example, mm-hmm. they'll have big big piles of wood and have the uh, body cremated with, with that. Right. Or they, they'd set, set, set it sail on, on, the, on the river. Right. And as it goes down, it's burning and, and getting cremated. You know? Right. Uh, but... <clears throat> We didn't have much cremation in the United States because most of our Christian religions uh, didn't approve of cremations. The Christian religion as the people go or what as the Bible would dictate, uh, the Bible would say cremation is not a good thing or how does that all go? I never really quite understood what that is. It's a holy container that Mm -hmm. God has created. Mm -hmm. And so leave it to God to have the body disintegrate in its natural form mm-hmm. is basically what what's the uh, basis of it. Yeah. I see. Where you came into being as a funeral director, mm-hmm. uh, I'm surmising predominantly Armenian funerals at the time, and then you transcend into other nationalities, mm-hmm. other religions, and mm-hmm. is that how it goes? Is, is a funeral director usually is noted within his own circle of people, mm-hmm. and they, it might be a religious group, it might be a social group, or whatever, or it might be a neighborhood group, 
but usually the funeral director is noted within a, his own particular group. Mm -hmm. And then as as he progresses and and uh, others begin to see that you're doing a a, a job that they, they would uh, appreciate. Mm -hmm. then he'll go into many other areas as well. But that's the basis of it in many cases. But for you, predominantly <clears throat> uh, Christian funerals? Would it be? Yes. It, okay. Yes. And uh, But you have gravitated into other religions? Yes or no? Oh, yes. Yeah. First of all, part of our training in mortuary science, we learned about each and every type of religion. Oh, you have to do Oh, that. yes, 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 yeah. When I when I first started seventy years ago, mm -hmm. uh, I, I had some Chinese funerals, and at a Chinese funeral, everybody came up and they put money in the casket next to the loved one. Money, really. Okay. And as the years went by, I've noticed a change. They come up and they put play money. Not real money, no. <laughs> oh, my. yeah. Monopoly money? What? <laughs> Just play money. Yeah. It, it it isn't it isn't real dollars. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. But many many times I'll I'll see them put a cigar in there. I'll put a a bottle of whiskey, yeah. uh, a baseball bat, uh, yeah. many many different things. Yeah. Now one one other. Uh, thing I told you yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the first funerals I had, we, uh, we were all done. We went to the cemetery. We buried the father. Mm -hmm. And I drove the family out from the cemetery. And as we were driving out, it started raining. And so when we got to the front gate of the cemetery and the rain was really coming down, the sun who at that time was probably 28 years old, he said, well, when you plant them, you gotta, you gotta water them. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always senses of humor that, that well, come Well, you would think, yeah, there, yeah. Would, there would be those. <laughs> Simon, uh, your retirement age is usually, at least from my vantage point, has been, you know, 65, 70 mm -hmm. years old. You're still going, you're still involved in this. Mm -hmm. Without divulging your age, do you plan on quitting at all, or what, what's in your mind? Well, I don't, I don't mind telling you my age. I'm going to be 89 this year. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's pretty, it, that's it, pretty happened, cool. it happened mostly when Alice died 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I had already put 60 years in. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, the time has come for me to step back mm -hmm. a bit. Because I had everything on my shoulders. The building and taking care of funerals and paying the bills and the whole works. Mm -hmm. I said, it's about time I took some of that off of my shoulders. And that's when I decided I'm going to step back a bit and not be bothered with the problem of the building and the bills and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I'm still going to be available to every family that comes to us for the funeral aspect of it. I'm going to do that. But 
Yeah, because it's been a comfort zone with you. You've been a sta yes. staple of our community for, wow, the 70 years that you've right. been doing it. No, no question. And the biggest reason is, at that point I was alone, Alice was gone, what am I going to do? I've through the 70 years, I've had experience where people, friends have come up to me, hey, Cy, you know, I worked 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, and oh, I worked hard. I'm retiring. I'm going to sit back and take it easy and enjoy life. And six months later, I bury them. So I noticed that, hey, even if you're retired, do something. Right. Do something. Be involved with something. Yeah. And so that was part of it too, that uh, being involved. And I find that being involved has helped me physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. They say that being involved, actually, from what I understood, mm -hmm. if science is correct, that uh, the more involvement you have, the more ability you have to avoid things like dementia. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because yes. you're exercising your mind. Yeah. 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 I, I tell my friends, let me take it to an extreme, extreme I tell them. Mm -hmm. You're going to retire and I'm telling you to do something. You don't have to do it full time. Mm -hmm. You don't have to even do it part time. Let's take it to an extreme and let's say you're going to do something once every two weeks and it's only going to take you 15 minutes to do it. If somebody is waiting for you to do it, that's the kicker. Okay. Right. You're still a contributing member of society and somebody's still depending on you to do something. You're making yourself that makes accountable. It a, that yeah. makes a big effect on you. Yeah. yeah I, I, I'm uh, still doing something. So now you've learned probably a lot more about Mr. Simon Javisian, not just as a funeral director, but his past as a musician. And I'm hoping that this has been an enlightening interview with you, Simon. It's so nice to have you here to talk about all this. I appreciate you yeah. giving me this opportunity. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate your being here. Thank you. Thank you.